Well, this morning we're, we're continuing on in our sermon series titled Saved For. We realize that the gospel doesn't just save us from things like a guilty past, but we're saved for certain realities, and they're wonderful. This morning we're looking at that, the truth that we are saved for service. Now, before we read our passage, it'd be good to get some context What's happening here uh, right before our passage? Well, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what is it that awaits him there? A cross. This is it. The time has come. No more hiding out in Galilee. No more large gatherings with miracles. In the verses just before our text, Jesus tells his disciples for a third time that he's going to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities. And they will mock him and beat him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise in glory. But the disciples don't seem to understand. They fixate not on the cross, but on the glory. They obsess over the benefits that they think will be theirs once Jesus is on his throne. We too can lose track of the cross of Christ and fixate on earthly power and glory. And so like those first disciples, we need to hear from Jesus. We need reminding of what the kingdom of heaven is all about so that we can become the people Christ saved us to be, servants who live for Christ's sake. Our passage is Mark chapter 10, verses 34 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, They began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them into him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word comes to us. And through this story, um, we see ourselves. We see ourselves as sometimes being ignorant of what your kingdom's about and needing you to rebuke us in love, to show us the better way. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would have your way with us, that we would be pressed deep with the truths from heaven, that we may walk on this earth as people who love you and honor you in all that we do, we pray. Amen. 
In our passage, Jesus instructs the disciples that the kingdom of heaven is not like any of the kingdoms of earth. He challenges what they treasure, status on earth and all the fringe benefits that come with power. They want Jesus' kingdom to come so that they can be elevated to positions of power. Jesus has a word for them and for us. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of servants. In other words, Christ saves you for service. The Christian life is a life of joyful service unto Christ. I don't know about you, but I need to hear this this morning. You know, so often I look at opportunities to serve as being interruptions in my life. How about you? Thankfully, Jesus opens our eyes and our hearts to his way. As we look at being saved for service, we're going to divide our time into two areas. First, we're going to look at the rebuke, and then we will look at the recalibration. First, the rebuke. What is it that the disciples did that caused such a well-deserved rebuke from Jesus? The disciples looked at Jesus as a means by which they could elevate their own stature upon this world. As they were walking along the road, two of the disciples, the brothers, uh, James and John, they pulled alongside Jesus, uh, kind of out of the ear of the other disciples, and, and they asked if they could have positions of authority when Jesus is finally enthroned as the Messiah King. Look at verse 37. And, he, and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now, On the one hand, we must admit, these disciples exhibit commendable faith. They believe that Jesus will one day be on a throne. But it isn't sufficient simply to believe. Faith in Jesus Christ is not the end in itself. Faith in Christ brings you into Christ's kingdom. Remember, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he began by saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, align yourself with me and I will bring you into this kingdom to come. The problem for Jesus' followers then and for us even today is that, is that the kingdom of Christ is far different from the kingdoms of this world. The disciples believed that Jesus was going to sit on a throne one day, and that's good. But they just couldn't wrap their heads around how he would get there and what it would mean for them in the long run. James and John wanted to sit on the right or the left. They wanted prestigious positions. You know, it's possible they really thought themselves worthier than the other ten, right? But it's also possible they knew it was coming and they wanted to be the first to ask. Like my kids, when they call out, shotgun, when they walk out of the house, what are they? They want to be the first one to shout it out so they can sit in the front passenger seat. James and John cry out before all the others, shotgun, Jesus, we got shotgun in your kingdom. Verse 38, Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that that I am and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And without even calling a timeout and wanting some clarification, right? I mean, wouldn't you think, like, all right, what does that mean? No, they don't even ask. They just say, yes, we can. Yes, we can, Jesus. Whatever you want, we're going to do it. So give us those positions. 
but they don't get it. The cup Jesus was about to drink is the cup of God's wrath as he hung on the cross. All of God's anger at all of the sin throughout all of history was going to land upon Jesus. Jesus was going to drink it up. And the baptism signifies Jesus' solidarity with sinners and his willingness to plunge himself fully under the weight of our sin. The disciples demonstrate that they're clueless, but thankfully Jesus is so patient with them, isn't he? Yes, Jesus says, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism, but I'm not the one who can grant you the seeds. What is it that Jesus is challenging? He's challenging that tendency of all of us to strategize the best future available for ourselves. Our tendency to suffer and serve only if there's something in it for me. The disciples look at Jesus and they saw him as their way up and their way out. They believed the hard life of service would eventually end when Jesus ascended his throne. Soon, soon, for sure these religious leaders who've gotten Jesus wrong all this time, soon they will be won over. And all of Jerusalem and Judea, they're going to throng to Jesus and enthrone him as their king. And we will exchange our tattered clothes for regal garments. Mom and dad will have a lot of colorful stories to tell the people back in Galilee about their boys. And finally, the days of picking up the leftover loaves and fishes will be done. The days of stopping and caring for the blind and mentally ill will be over. We will serve now so that we can be served later. Now, let me ask you, be honest. Do you find yourselves operating this way? Does your mind operate like the disciples, willing to serve so long as it benefits you in the long run? It's true, we can live for ambitions that don't line up with Jesus' plan for his people. In my youth group a long time ago, it's getting older now, I went to a funeral this past week of one of the kids who's in my youth group. I met him when, he's a, when he was 11, uh, and now he's like almost 30. Uh, anyway, I had a student in my youth group years ago who said he wanted to be really rich so that when he tithes, it would be a large amount. Looking back, I cannot help but think that perhaps he was more excited about being rich in this world than he was really concerned about serving Christ. That his, tithe, that his tithe would somehow sanctify his greed. We Christians need to be wary of our motives. We can hold our greedy ambitions up and say, Jesus, ride shotgun with me in my life so that I can achieve my dreams. Many who profess faith in Christ live this way. They're consumed with fulfilling their own life dreams, which leaves little room for service unto Christ in his kingdom. Perhaps this describes you. Or perhaps not. Perhaps you're a fairly mature Christian. You want to honor Christ seven days a week, and that is a beautiful motivation. But you must be weary. Weary, not weary. Even when Christians begin with godly motives, our success can be our undoing. I've seen so many church leaders lately see their ministries fall. They build these giant churches with thousands in attendance. In the eyes of the watching world, they are great in the kingdom. But under the surface, there is pride and selfish ambition. 
They don't live to serve the church. The church lives to serve their egos. And eventually it all collapses. This is a warning to us all. Success tends to mess with our heads. I like what J.C. Ryle says about Christians and success. Listen closely. Most of Christ's laborers probably have as much success as their souls can bear. Ouch. Christian, you must be on guard. It isn't how much you accomplish for the Lord that is important. It's your Christ-centered motivation that is important. Plenty serve in the church out of guilty feelings. Plenty serve in the church because they don't want to be seen as a lazy Christian. Plenty serve in the church so that they can be seen by others. But the service that is pleasing to Christ is service that is in His name for His glory. Service that is done because you are alive in Christ. Because His love and His grace are coursing through your veins. Because what matters to Jesus is what matters most to you. The disciples had yet to learn this. They looked at Jesus as a means to their ends. One day soon, the days of tireless serving will be over. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at the patience of Jesus towards his disciples. I mean, if it was me, I would be tempted to, I mean, to shout out, you stupid idiots. I'm about to die. D-I-E, die for you and your sins. You're all fired. Jesus is no doubt frustrated with the twelve, but he's also patient. See, the disciples are full of faith, but they're ignorant. Ignorant of what? The kingdom and its ethics. The kingdom of God is coming to earth, and it's completely upside down from the world that we live in. In verse 42, Jesus describes how greatness works in the kingdoms of this world. Look what he says. And Jesus called to them, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. That would be in a bad way, you know. Jesus points to what they already know and understand. We know this world so well. We know what it's like to work with mean bosses or in organizations that don't seem to care for the employees at all. And and people are just moving their way up and stepping on everybody on the way. We know what it's like. We all know that so well. Jesus points to what they already know, how this world defines greatness. Greatness is having power over people who serve you. It's true, isn't it? Greatness, according to the secular world, is that one is thought to be most great, who has the most land, the most money, the most servants, the most status, and most earthly power. This is how the kingdoms of the world operate. The goal is to get higher and higher up the ladder. And as you use people on the way up, uh, you will serve, but only if serving somehow benefits you. And so success is not measured by how many people you serve, but how many people end up serving you. And so the, the bigger our titles, the better. Oh, to have managing director under your name. But then once you have managing director, oh, to have partner. We long and cannot wait to be promoted from assistant to associate. 
And oh, when someone refers to you by that old title, well, they get a quick reminder. Um, Gary, haven't you heard? I'm, I'm a senior associate now. Yeah. And those TPS reports. Yeah. With each promotion comes more thirst for power. So the, the, the way of the kingdom of this world is that the higher up you ascend, the less you have to serve others and the more others have to serve you. Jesus is saying this is how the world operates. But let me tell you about the kingdom to which you now belong. Let me tell you about greatness in the kingdom. He shows us in verse 43. After saying, after showing them the way of the world, he says emphatically, in the Greek it's so, so emphatic, he says, but it shall not be so among you. He's saying, no way is this ever to be a part of the people of my kingdom. He says, when you follow me into the kingdom, you're going to be doing things differently. And not just differently. The kingdom of heaven is not just different from the kingdoms of this world. It is utterly contrary. The kingdom of heaven is completely upside down to the kingdom of this world. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven isn't how many people serve you, but how well you serve others in Christ's name. Beginning in verse 43, he gives us a threefold description of greatness in the kingdom. Look what he says further down in 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, did you notice Jesus didn't say, if you want to be great, go be a servant. No, he's saying, when it comes time to evaluate the people around you, the criteria you need to look for to, to be able to identify who is great in your midst is whether they're a servant or not. Stop looking for the polished speaker, the most wealthy person. The Greek word translated servant is the word diakonos. It's frequently used to describe someone who waits on tables. The servant's role is to what? To make other people's lives better. The servant doesn't focus on, on his own needs or wants, but rather focuses upon others' needs. Jesus is describing life in the kingdom. If Christ has brought you into the kingdom, then you are now a servant. The kingdom life is lived this way. That's how it's lived. Jesus wants us to value the values of the kingdom. But he doesn't stop there. Do you see what he does at the beginning of verse 44? He moves from great in the kingdom to a higher position. What is it? First in the kingdom. You know, many can be great, but only one can be first. So he's raising the bar, right? Look what he says. And whoever would be first among you, in verse 44, must also be slave of all. Now remember, in Greco-Roman culture back then, slavery was far different than what took place in America in our past. Many people sold themselves into slavery like indentured servants so that they would have gainful employment. And most slaves were able to, to earn their way out of uh, earn their freedom by the time they were in their 30s or 40s. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, as you look around in your church community that's going to be gathering around, for the one who ranks first, look for one who is what? Slave of all. 
And to be a slave of all is a position of utmost service to others. A slave has absolutely no rights. Robinson writes that a slave's whole life is lived in service for which he can claim neither credit nor reward. Jesus is saying, look around for those who are so transformed by my love that they've surrendered everything so that they may live life serving others for my sake. Now let me show you visually what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, be a servant. Oh, and first, even higher, you go lower. Slave of all. Do you see that? It's upside down. It's totally contrary to the world in which you live in. But Jesus didn't finish there. There's one more ranking. But whoever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. And then he says, for even the Son of Man, that's what Jesus called himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Far greater than first. Far lower than slave of all. There's no higher rank of greatness than that which belongs to Jesus Christ. There is no one greater in the kingdom of heaven than the Son of Man because only the Son of Man can serve by giving His life as a ransom for many. Jesus served to the point of taking all of our sin and guilt upon Himself. He drank the cup of wrath for you and me. He was baptized into the suffering that we deserve. None of us here could ever serve at the same level as Jesus Christ. We can never offer our lives as a ransom for many. Good luck trying. Our deaths could never ransom or purchase back the lives of sinners. But Jesus could and did. That's Jesus' rebuke of his disciples. He needed to inform their minds so that they would no longer be ignorant as to the value systems of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is upside down to the world's kingdoms. Greatness isn't how many people serve you, but how you serve others for Christ's sake. Now for the recalibration. If you spent much time standing, uh, filling up your gas by a gas pump, you probably noticed there's like this little decal on there that as an inspection notice, it tells you the, the year, and then they like stamp out the year and, and the month, say July 2017. It tells you that an inspector had come and tested the gasoline pump to make sure that it's calibrated. They pump a few gallons into a tank. It tells the tester if the pump is calibrated or not. And if it's not calibrated, it needs to be recalibrated. See, if it isn't correctly calibrated, people are going to not get what they've paid for when they pull up to the pump. Now, as important it is that our pumps are calibrated, it's even more important that our minds and hearts are calibrated to what Jesus is describing here. It would be wise for us to check and see. See, if we heard his call, do we understand that he doesn't just save us from our sin, but he saves us for service? Are our lives calibrated towards that reality? You know, the disciples could be excused for their ignorance, right? At this time, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross when they approached him for all these favors. But you and I have no excuse. He's gone to the cross. 
The Son of Man has served to the utmost. What we are powerless to do, Christ has already done. And we know it. The Apostle Paul says how this must change us. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, listen, this is what he says. He says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Because we've concluded this. What is it? That one has died for all, therefore all have died with him. And he died for all so that, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, when you look at the cross of Christ, you're to come to a conclusion, says Paul. You're to use your mind to conclude what? That Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. And not just you, but y'all, right? He died for all so that all might no longer live for self, but live for him who died for us. In other words, the whole way in which we look at the world now must be recalibrated by the cross, by the gospel. No longer are we to calibrate our lives to the ways of the world. We're no longer to look with eyes of envy at the coworker who made the big sale. We're no longer to are we to gossip about the classmate who had to who brown nosed her way up to a good grade. No longer are we to view those on the organizational chart below us as stepping stones to a better life. No longer are we to see someone in need and think that's not my problem. No longer are we to see a need in the church and think Someone else will have to step up. No longer are we to figure out if someone is really worthy of our aid or not. No longer are we to consider how helping in another will somehow help us achieve our goals. No, because Christ served us to the utmost by dying for us all, we all are to live for him no matter the cost. My friends, you see how important it is to have our lives recalibrated by the gospel? See, until our lives are, are mesmerized by the sacrificial love of Christ, we will not come alive as the people he's called us to be. Unless the people of Christ appropriate the love of Christ and the servant heart of Christ, there can be no progress in the kingdom of Christ. It is only when the church comes alive in Christ and lives like Christ that the message of Christ is proclaimed in our hurting world. Now, Jesus doesn't just teach us these important truths. He models it for us. He lived it. You know, on the night before he died, just a week or so, maybe not even a week after he had that interchange with the disciples, he gathered them for one last meal in the upper room. And as each disciple walked in that door, they would have walked in and they would have noticed to their left or to their right a pitcher of water, a bowl, and a towel. They would have known what it was for. It was customary for the servant in the home to wash the dirty feet of the guests. It wasn't optional. It was a necessary act of hospitality. The disciples walk in and realize there's, there's no servant there to wash their feet. <laughs> Timidly, they, 
They look around at each other. Their eyes speak volumes. I'm not stupid down. I'm not doing any dirty work. It's not my turn. Definitely not my turn. Thomas, I think it's your turn, Thomas. Sorry, dude. And Matthew thinks, oh, I'm not even going to make eye contact. I'm just going to act busy adjusting my tunic. Oh, there we go. There we go. There we go. Somebody else do that. They all stand there inside the foyer. None of the disciples lift a finger. But then Jesus walks forward and he stoops with a towel. He pours water into a bowl and he pushes the bowl besides Peter. Peter sees what he's doing and Peter pushes back. No, 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 Lord, I see what you're doing. No, 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 I, we made a huge mistake. Uh, maybe we can just start all over. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch a tiger by his tongue. No, says Jesus, I'm washing your feet. And Simon, if you do not let me wash your feet, you will have no part in me or my kingdom. Once again, without even thinking, he says, well, then just wash all of me then. And Jesus says, don't get so carried away, Simon Peter. You're already clean. It's your feet. You know how the custom works. And then Jesus, it must have taken a long time. A lot of milling around, one to the next. Jesus proceeds to wash and dry all 24 hairy, dirty, smelly feet. Even the two feet of his betrayer. On the night before he would die, he said, I did this all as an example for you. I've washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. And in a few hours, Jesus will be arrested. And those feet that he had just washed will kick up dust as they run from him. And when Jesus dies on the cross and is buried, those same disciples will walk away with those same feet, disillusioned and lost. But soon, those very same feet of these weak men will stand strong. The Lord will rise and seek them out. Then, then they will understand that the Son of Man must be rejected and handed over and mocked and spat upon and die. And then they will understand that the Son of Man must serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And then the disciples will understand. And the feet washing will make sense. Our Master has stooped to serve for our sake. Now we stoop to serve for his sake. The disciples now know. They're no longer ignorant in the ways of Christ and his kingdom. The recalibration is done. The disciples stay in Jerusalem 50 days until Pentecost. Then these one-time timid, self-interested, worldly men demonstrated the power and authority that was now theirs in the kingdom Peter preached, listen, he preached, and what happened? Thousands were converted in a single day. 
They were jailed and they miraculously escaped. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. Talk about power and authority. And I don't think James or John or any other disciple cared who was at the right or who was at the left in Christ's kingdom. Now, imagine if you had the power that these disciples had as apostles in the early church. Imagine if you had the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. Over time, would it not go to your head? Would you not be tempted to turn into a celebrity preacher with a blog? Do you not think pride would come upon you and undermine your ministry? What was it that kept them from being destroyed by their pride and brought down by self-deceit? Tim Brister says this. Listen, I believe a significant reason for their faithfulness and, and perseverance in the mission was due to the fact that Jesus got to their feet so that what God does through them never got to their heads. Jesus went after their feet to get to their hearts. So to us, oh, how we're in need of having our hearts recalibrated so that we become those who long to serve others for Christ's sake, no matter the cost. And when Christ works wonders through us, Grace Church, and guess what? He always works wonders through his people who are alive to him. When Christ works wonders through us, our heads will be humble because our hearts have been softened by the gentle hands of our Savior. In a moment's time, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion. Take time to remind yourself that the Son of Man, God himself, took on flesh and became a servant so that you and I may belong to God and to his kingdom. May Jesus' rebuke of those ancient disciples fall afresh on us this morning. May we be reminded of how lovingly and faithfully Jesus served us, even to the point of death. May we now see ourselves as members of his kingdom, a kingdom that prizes loving service above all virtues. And may we be motivated by Jesus' service towards us. And may we love and serve no matter the cost to ourselves. And one day in the age to come, may we hear our Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word provides rebuke. We need it so often. We're thankful also, though, that you're patient with your people. We thank you, Jesus, that um, you didn't wait for us to clean up our lives before you stooped to serve us by living and dying. We thank you now that you intercede for us and still continue to serve us, that you serve us in glory. May our lives be transformed by what we studied here this morning. May we walk out of here people who are calibrated uh, for your kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world, we pray. Amen.